welcome to the Power of Sports podcast, where the jocks meet the geeks, and no one can tell which is which. You know, in previous episodes of this show, we've explored the ways in which the Olympic Games are much more than games, how they become incredibly expensive, and how they shape our sense of national identity, race, and gender. But one thing we have yet to explore is how the environmental footprint of the Olympics is much larger than the bright lights and the spectacular victory laps would have us believe. It is now nearing the end of these Olympics, and I've really enjoyed watching some heroic athletes to find the limits of what we previously thought was humanly possible. But in this episode, we hear from Professor Robin Kietlinski about the collateral damage of this spectacle, and in particular, the environmental legacy of the Olympic Games in Japan and a concept called greenwashing. Professor Kietlinski has done some fascinating on-the-ground research about the rhetoric of sustainability and legacy of these Tokyo Olympics and the reality that is sometimes obscured by it. I know you will want to listen as she places the games into historical context and describes how Japanese reclaim lands in Tokyo Bay. The process by which garbage is converted into ash, which is then used to make what Professor Kietlinski calls trash islands, is downright mind-boggling. So listen in first to Professor Kietlinski's brief presentation to our colloquium back in early June, and then to our conversation from early August, smack dab in the middle of the greatest sporting event there is. Professor Robin Kietlinski is Associate Professor of History at LaGuardia Community College. She received her PhD from the University of Pennsylvania and her BA from the University of Chicago. And her research focuses on East Asia, specifically modern Japan. And in 2012, she published her book titled Japanese Women in Sport Beyond Baseball and Sumo, which is a great book that examines the history of women's participation in Japanese sports since the 19th century. And she's published extensively on other topics as well, as you'll hear about today, related to the intersection of sport and society in modern Japan. Dr. Kintliski is also the recipient of a Fulbright Research Grant to carry out research on the Olympics and the environment of modern Japan, which is, I believe, the basis of the the talk you're you're going to share with us today. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Professor Kintliski, for coming to speak with us today. Thank you for the nice introduction. And just to follow up a little bit, the current project, was conceived shortly after Tokyo won the bid for the 2020 Olympics. So in 2013 or 14, I started thinking about this project and about just the paradox of this growing focus on the environment and sustainability in the Olympic movement. It just, it was almost over the top. Things like at the Rio ceremony, every country would bring out a a small sapling and plant a tree. And it was this very obvious, like nod to environmentalism. While at the same time, there's all this criticism over these massive infrastructure projects. And so I just thought that that kind of contradiction was something interesting. And then I also knew from prior research that Japan was obsessed with the Olympics. They're just always bidding for or preparing for or hosting the Olympics. And I tried to think about how I could combine these interests. I've gotten increasingly interested in environmental issues. It feels somewhat existential. I spend basically every summer in Japan, with the exception of last summer and this summer, sadly, but I've been going for 20 years every summer, and it really is almost unbearably hot there, and and like that was another thing. I'm a runner. I run when I'm in Japan, and it, it really is too hot to hold the Olympic Games, and that was another thing that I found really interesting, the climate change aspect and all these different 
things that Japan was trying to do to combat climate change, which has largely been brought on in Tokyo by all this infrastructure and what they call the urban like heat island effect, where there's not enough green space and trees and there's too much concrete. So I want to talk a little bit about the idea of legacy and what is the legacy of this event. And I think now that it's the first Olympics to ever be postponed, it has a whole different layer of what its legacy is going to be. And of course, we don't know yet, but it's one of these catchphrases that you you hear a lot in the Olympics about the legacy. It's a vague term, and I want to think about it in terms of the environment specifically. So this first slide is called Nihonbashi. It's a really famous bridge in central Tokyo. And historically, this bridge played a very important role in not just Tokyo, but really Japan's commerce, the history of commerce. It's in lots of artistic prints and people have written about it. And as part of some of the massive infrastructure projects in the lead up to the 1964 Olympics, this bridge was covered up by a big highway like a lot of Tokyo was. And would that have happened without the Olympics? Possibly, but a lot of parts of Tokyo were, were covered up during this period of high-speed economic growth in the 1960s, especially. So is this a legacy of the 64 Olympics? I'm not sure. Another legacy that we might think about in terms of the Olympics is the development of Tokyo Bay. And I think even a lot of people who have spent significant time in Tokyo are unaware of how much of the city is actually built up on reclaimed land. You have all of these man-made islands in Tokyo Bay. This is in 1850 when the city started being settled and became the capital city. So the capital used to be in Kyoto and it was moved. And then they started basically digging canals, throwing dirt and land into the bay, and they were building out these islands. And this is what it looks like today. And while land reclamation has been happening for four centuries in, in Tokyo Bay, it's been dramatically sped up in preparation for the Olympics. So I wanted to show these images of changing Tokyo just to get you thinking about what we mean when we talk about Olympic legacy. When the Olympics began in the 1890s, the concept of legacy wasn't really part of the whole thing. It really didn't become part of Olympic rhetoric at all until well into the 20th century and host cities started putting on these bigger and bigger events. And so bigger and bigger physical changes started to become necessary for the Olympics. So according to the IOC, Olympic legacy includes, quote, all of the long-term benefits of the Olympic Games that serve the host city, its people, and the Olympic movement before, during, and long after the Olympic Games. So when I went to dig around for the more information about legacy on the olympic.org website, and to be fair, this was a couple of years ago when I first started digging. So you can see the date was August 2019. But when I went to the legacy website, the only host city that they had, like when you said, I want to learn about the legacy, there was only one option and it was Barcelona in 1992. There were no other cities listed. This website was relatively new at the time and, and so it was still under construction. But I actually don't think it was at all coincidental that when they started this website, and at least for the many months that I was checking it, Barcelona was the only one because Barcelona is often cited as the success story for Olympic legacy, the way that Olympics can boost a local economy and transform and modernize a city. But of course, the Olympic.org website is not going to highlight some of the 
I don't know, darker sides of Olympic legacy, although you can find this stuff online as well. It could be that Barcelona was the first and easiest site for them to create because some of the other cities have such mixed legacies. And a lot of cities have struggled with massive debt, with these white elephant stadiums that are never really used again, with issues of human displacement after the event, and with ecological degradation and problems. I'm going to be looking at the legacy revolving around Japan, but there's the, the story is the same in every major city. So there's actually a line of scholarship that kind of interrogates the difference between concepts of sustainability and legacy as they relate to the Olympic Games. Oftentimes, these, these ideas are conflated and used interchangeably or confused. So like the, the 2020 or 2021 literature about the event put a very heavy emphasis on the legacy of this event. And sustainability is folded into the idea that the changes that are being made to Tokyo and really any host city, but in this case, Tokyo, are going to benefit everybody because a lot of their projects are, are supposedly sustainable. And the, the UN definition of sustainable development is that it's development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. This notion that first the legacy of the event, whatever's left over afterwards, and then later the environment or how sustainable that these ideas have, have become the heart of the Olympic movement. And they're very central to people's bid packages when they try to win the right to host the Olympics. Particularly in the post-war era, like after the 1940s, organizers, the host city has used the Olympics as an engine for change. They integrate these Olympic development projects into much broader urban planning projects and infrastructure projects. And this was very evident in Tokyo when they built the bullet train and they upgraded their sewage system. But when the IOC first defined legacy in their report in 2002, they don't talk about the environment explicitly. This is something that, that comes later. I saw this in a magazine in Japan about the legacy, and this is, again, pre-postponement, so this is when it was going to be in 2020. It's just about all the different legacies of the Olympics, and it's just so far-reaching. There's physical legacies, there's economic legacies, there's foreign investment legacies, and there's so many different legacies. And, and being such a broad and vague term, legacy, you can use it to justify any major change to your city. In 2018, the IOC announced that it for the Tokyo Games, they, they were going to try to pioneer this new legacy report, which meant that host cities were required to inventory and track all the legacy information in an attempt to analyze and measure the legacy. But again, how are you measuring it? What are you measuring it again? So in their announcement, the IOC kind of uses the words legacy and sustainability almost interchangeably and uncritically. They introduced this legacy reporting framework devised in partnership with leading experts in the field, apply the flexible structure to identify, describe, and analyze and measure legacy. There's all these reports, <laughs> but it's just still to me, and I've been studying this for a long time, it's just a bit unclear what specifically they're trying to measure and against what and to what end and what if they don't, you know, meet certain standards, then what? So one of the thoughts that I found really provocative and have been thinking about came when I saw Jules Boykoff. I met up with him and a group of 
anti-Olympics protesters in Tokyo in 2019. And he gave a presentation in Tokyo and he was part of this group where we were going around looking at venues. And one of the ideas that he mentioned at this workshop that he was giving at Sophia University was that instead of the word legacy, a more constructive phrase is something like promises and follow through. In other words, what promises do the planning committees make? And what promises do the IOC make in the bidding and the planning process? And then how do they follow through on them? Do they or do they not? And I just find this to be so much more concrete and helpful than the nebulous word legacy. So what promises and follow through have we seen with regards to Tokyo and the natural environment? I would say broadly speaking, just based on what I've been looking at in the past few years, the follow through on environmental promises has not been great. There's a term called greenwashing. So the definition I have here is publicly voicing concern for the environment and claiming credit for a solution. In reality, doing very little, if anything at all. And that's actually from something that Jules Boykoff did publish about this. And unfortunately, greenwashing has become quite common in the Olympic movement. So I I wanted to provide a little bit of historical context about that. Japan actually plays an important role in this history of greenwashing and environmental rhetoric in the Olympic movement, uh, because in 1972, Japan hosted the Winter Olympics. And it was the first time that in the post-games report, the organizers of the Sapporo Games, the IOC said that the, the people in Japan, quote, afforded special consideration to environmental conditions and environmental development. They constructed their ski slopes in a specific way that tried to minimize environmental impact. And they also said in their write-up that they didn't want to disrupt the natural environment and they wanted trees to be replanted in some of the places where they built ski runs. The environment kept playing a larger and larger role in the Olympic movement. So the next Winter Games after Sapporo was awarded to Denver and the citizens of Denver, Colorado challenged the IOC and certain environmental groups. There's one called the Rocky Mountain Center on the Environment. They led all these campaigns and petitions and referendums that ultimately did pressure the IOC for the first time ever to relocate the Olympics. So they were relocated to Innsbruck, Austria. And so that was the first city ever to turn away the Olympics after they had been awarded. And also it really made environmental issues central to the question of whether or not a city is willing to host. And again, the winter games seem to always play a slightly bigger uh, role in environmental concern because they're mostly outside. So global environmental awareness, not just with the Olympics, but generally speaking with growing pollution and industrialization globally, environmental awareness was growing through the 70s and 80s. In the early 90s, the the IOC president officially adapted the Olympic Charter to state that, quote, the Olympic Games should be held in conditions which demonstrate a responsible concern for environmental issues. In 1995, after this statement was made, the IOC inaugurated this Special Sport and Environment Commission that met every year to discuss environmental themes and programs. And they also built this cooperative agreement with the UN. Most of the academic scholarship about connecting the environment with the Olympics really points to 1972 as being the starting point. But something that I found interesting in my research was that actually in Tokyo's preparation for hosting the the Summer Olympics in 64, they also discussed the environment in quite a bit of detail. Specifically, 
the fact that Tokyo was just super gross in the 1960s. It was really dirty. And they this event is remembered as like Japan's return to the world stage after most people still remembered World War II at that time. Japan really was leveled in World War II. So it was physically rebuilding and coming back. And then it, symbolically, it wanted to return as a modern peaceful, technologically advanced country. And also keep in mind, a lot of people had colored televisions for the first time. They were not just reading about this event or hearing it on the radio, but they were actually seeing it in their living rooms. And so Japan had this opportunity to show itself off to the world. And it didn't want the air to be dirty and the water to be stinky and the streets to be full of rubble. They wanted to present a very polished image of themselves. And this is a pamphlet that was sorry, made by the Olympic Organizing Committee. So they're highlighting all the environmental problems that Tokyo needs to address in preparation for hosting. This is about trash disposal, water quality, roads. So they start to deal with how to handle trash disposal for a long time was just dumped in Tokyo Bay, like literally just landfills in Tokyo Bay. And so they want to figure out ways to, to better handle that and to improve the water and the roadways. So the transformations that Tokyo wound up going under after World War II in preparation for the 1964 Olympics are very well documented and pretty widely discussed in all the history of post-war Japan. Usually these transformations are presented as Tokyo cleaning up and modernizing and improving itself in preparation for the global audience to arrive for the Olympic Games. It's often presented really in a almost entirely positive light and particularly given the fact that after leading up to, during, and after the 1964 Olympics, Japan was experiencing this economic miracle. So it's just seen as this kind of catalyst and this springboard into this great economy. And so people are not typically that critical of the event. And I don't think anybody can argue against the fact that it was cleaned up. It was modernized. Nice new highways that are still used today were built. The bullet train was developed and it's, you know, still widely used and extensive throughout all of Japan. But all of these efforts did also irreparably change and alter the environment of the city. If anyone has spent any time in Tokyo, you don't even notice after a certain point how many waterways are covered with, with highways. And I had spent so much time in Tokyo, it wasn't until I was there with my little kids one summer and like this image over here in the bottom right where there's like a highway on top of a highway. My kids live in New York and they had just never seen that before. <laughs> they, my daughter's like, why is there a highway on top of the highway? And I hadn't never really thought about it, but it's totally ubiquitous all throughout Japan. You have these like multi-level highways and then they cover up waterways. And I guess my point here is it is a very neat and clean city, but it also really has disrupted the natural environment. And even if you think about the water life in waterways, if it doesn't get much sunlight ever, that alters it, it changes it. And then just one interesting trivia fact about this, you might just think it's like a really populated city. And so maybe with or without the Olympics, it's just inevitable that some of these highways were going to wind up going over waterways. But what is very interesting is that for the Olympic budget, apparently they had a certain amount of money allocated to use for infrastructure 
for the Olympics. And apparently they spent so much money on developing the bullet train because they really wanted to impress people. And it did. And the bullet train opened one week before the opening ceremonies in 1964. But they blew so much of the Olympic budget developing the bullet train that they they did not have enough money to build all the highways that they wanted. And if you build a highway through land, you have to displace some people and it costs more money. But if you build the highway over a river, it just costs a lot less money. They didn't have to pay to displace people and to split up neighborhoods or anything. So it was just a lot cheaper to build these highways over rivers. And apparently that's very closely connected to the money that was spent instead on the bullet train. I just want to mention really briefly why I called this presentation Trash Island. So one of the things that a lot of people notice when they visit Japan for the first time even is how meticulous they are about sorting their trash. As a New Yorker, it's always shocking how there's a total lack of public trash cans in Japan. If you have trash, you have to hold on to it. You might find a convenience store that has a trash can, but if you go into that convenience store, it's going to be all separated. First of all, they'll give you a dirty look if you go in and try to throw out your trash. But then you have to remove the top from your plastic bottle, put it into a special thing, and then put your plastic bottle and your can somewhere else, and then your burnable garbage, and then your non-burnable garbage. And if you live in Japan, it's really intense. You have to steam off labels, and it's very intense trash separation. But part of the reason is that they have these trash incinerators and these incinerators are all over Tokyo and they are very high tech and very clean. They don't smell. I visited a few of them. They actually remarkably do not smell, but they heat the trash at really high temperature and then it turns into this like ash. A huge amount of burnable trash turns into a very small amount of ash. And they have this very complex filtration system where they take out any toxic chemicals, supposedly. And so that what's emitted from these book stacks is actually just like steam. It's not even, it's not even smelly pollution. They somehow filter it all out. It's very expensive, apparently. That's why they don't do this in a lot of countries. But they do have this system where they're able to get this ash. And then they take that ash and they turn it into a kind of cement. And that's how... They are building these islands of reclaimed land. So they are literally Tokyo's burnable trash converted into a kind of building material, concrete. It's a city of 35 million people. So they generate a lot of trash <laughs> and that's what the Olympics are being held on. And actually it gets, it's even more fascinating because there's actually a bunch of the venues like the diving venue, the swimming venue, and the archery venue. They are actually powered by the incinerator. <laughs> So the burning of the trash creates energy, which creates power, and the, the heat in the pool and stuff is all created from the burning of the trash. Um, so I can't decide if I think it's like amazing or disgusting, <laughs> but I guess it's the future. Like we're going to keep generating trash and we might as well do something productive with all that energy. So there are actually venues that are being um, powered by, and it is... Japan's innovation and technology at work. On the other hand, I talked to Japanese people, would you move to this area? Is it a desirable area? And for a number of reasons, but I think first and foremost, people aren't super eager to live on reclaimed land because they love earthquakes in Japan. To me, this is just one of the most confounding and strange things because there's this process called liquefaction. This should be front of mind when you're doing development projects. So a number of Japanese people who said, I wouldn't 
want to live there because it's on reclaimed land and that's not very safe in an earthquake. You use the word incongruously named Island of Dreams, Yume oh, Noshima, yeah. to dis describe this island that's the mountain of trash, but was it maybe intentionally named that as a euphemism? Oh, Yume Noshima. Yeah, a lot of those islands have these, I guess, similar names. I, I don't know if it's, I think they sincerely wanted it to be nice, although, yeah, the Yume Noshima, it was like a festering landfill for years, and it was still called Island of Dreams, and it was so bad, and it was so covered in rats and flies and, and like vermin in the 1960s that they didn't know what else to do but to set it on fire. So there's these images of helicopters just flying over oh. with something flammable because they just wanted to kill all the rodents and stuff. So they just torched it. It's disgusting. So I guess it's a little ironic that it's, it's called the Island of Dreams. But there's other things like sea, this is the sea forest. It's like these they have these kind of whimsical names, even though they're all made out of trash. I just have one more anecdote, which was this environmental nonprofit organization in Tokyo that I met with. And they were trying to do something very simple. Tokyo's drinking water is very clean. And so what they wanted was to have people have stations where people could fill up their water bottles instead of using plastic disposable bottles. And they were trying and trying to have just like water fountains set up because it's so hot in Tokyo in the summer. And they just said Coca-Cola is a major sponsor of this event. And so Coca-Cola wants to put vending machines everywhere, which are just ubiquitous in Japan to begin with. I think that the corporate interests just always win out. And it seemed to me in my research that the corporate interests are, are prioritized over any kind of environmental concern. I'm personally a little bit skeptical of this kind of rapid development. And it was done really quickly for the Olympics. What's really interesting is that you had this kind of loose coalition of protesters that I met with several years ago. But that the chorus of protesters has just gotten so much bigger and louder in the past year. I think this is part of a larger critique of the Japanese government and their handling of just literally everything. <laughs> there were people who were really upset about how they handled the Fukushima nuclear disaster. And that has just carried over into this distrust of the government and this lack of faith. And the fact that they haven't been able to get vaccines out to people is just the final nail in the coffin. It feels like people are really upset. So let's get into it, Robin, because I don't want to keep you too long. I really appreciate you taking extra time to follow up here on what you shared with the students at the colloquium in early June. And of course, we're now recording this smack dab in the middle of the Tokyo Olympics. And obviously the show has gone on, but as you note in your recent cover story for The Diplomat, there have been anti-Olympic protests in Japan and abroad since Tokyo won the bid to host the games in 2013. And these protests have arguably intensified since the coronavirus pandemic has become a bigger problem globally and in Japan. So as of July of this year, 2021, four or five Japanese did not want the games to go on. So I wonder, how would you describe these games, the opening ceremony? What's your sense of why these games were not canceled despite all these protests? I'm not sure that I have any particularly original insight on this, as I think a lot of people have noted just the corporate interests that are at play. And I think all that I would add is that, yes, we know Japan has invested a lot of money in this, as has as have a lot of companies. But I do think there is a silver lining that people are 
much more aware. They had this year to sit and think about, should this event happen? Who is it for? Is it for the athletes? Is it for the corporations? Is it for the nation's prestige? And so I do think that moving forward, people are just going to be more thoughtful, whether it's about hosting or attending. I think the the next Olympics in Beijing is also going to be very just politically charged and people are talking about boycotts and stuff like that. So I think the Olympics as a movement is in a moment of transition. As a historian, I can't really say what's coming in the future, but I would say that I've never seen people so critical. So I did think that the opening ceremony, did you watch it? A little bit of it, yeah. Yeah, I thought it was well done in terms of taking into account the moment that we were living in and they had it was like definitely more somber I think than it was probably originally planned so I think some rules will change I think in terms of like host hosting and if they already have right like we've seen in the past couple years with Bach as the head of the IOC that they've changed the whole protocol for how they choose host cities. And I think a lot of that was motivated by cities not really being interested in hosting anymore and the citizens Mm -hmm. as well, not particularly wanting it. Yes. And and I know that part of your work is to contextualize the hosting of these games within both Japan's broader political ambitions and also uh, within the context of climate change and issues of sustainability. So I wonder if you can uh, speak to how those contexts Uh, both national and international connect in your mind? Yeah, it might be helpful to just explain how I got interested in the topic, which Mm -hmm. was that I have been using sports in the Olympics as a kind of window into Japanese history and society for many years. And I always found that it was a topic that resonated particularly well with students as well as general audiences. And so I just really liked the Olympics as a historical and social phenomenon as a way of looking at Japan. And I had done gender was my initial focus. And I felt like I wrapped up that project. And then I go to Japan every year and every year, it just felt hotter and hotter. Uh, And then in 2013, Japan won the bid to host in 2020. And from the get go, there were environmental concerns. And so simultaneously, the Olympic movement voiced concern for the environment. So from a while back, like the 1990s, they officially incorporated sustainability and the environment into their planning and cities had to include it in the bidding process. I just thought as an academic topic, the kind of contradiction between these massive infrastructure projects that are just getting bigger and bigger by definition, because there's more sports, right? Looking at the Olympics today, I see BMX biking and the three-on-three basketball and the sport climbing, like they're all in this brand new arena in Tokyo Bay and surrounded by these massive empty stands. And those sports didn't exist at the last Olympics. So they've put in a lot of time and they fortified these man-made islands to to have these things. Actually, like interesting side note, when they were building that sports park on the reclaimed land there in Tokyo Bay, they discovered an undetonated bomb from World War II. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I saw it when I was there. They had to surround it with like sandbags and it was from so that those islands some of the islands date back to like the nineteen forties and then some of them are more recently constructed. Since I didn't know about that until now, then the bomb didn't go off. It didn't go off. And I don't know that it got much attention, but I was fascinated when I found out that it that they found it. Anyway, so I just thought that contradiction 
contradiction between claiming concern for the environment while simultaneously making bigger and bigger footprints. And then all the kind of bait and switch, like Japan, Tokyo says it's going to have a compact Olympics and we're going to reuse venues. Yes, they did reuse a few venues, but they took the main venue, which was perfectly good, tore it down and built a brand new venue. And then they also built like 16 or 17 brand new venues in Tokyo Bay. I just felt like there was a lot of this greenwashing where they are claiming concern and, and and not actually doing anything that helps the country. And then now, I think moving forward, what I'm going to be very interested in looking at is how all of the COVID changes actually derailed all their sustainability projects. So for example, there's backtracking on public transportation, right? People have to take private transportation from the airport. And with all of the sanitizing and like Japan is already a country that has way too much single-use plastic and now it's just magnified because every person who's in quarantine is getting multiple meals a day that are wrapped in multiple layers of plastic and they set out some goals of zero waste and zero carbon and they wanted to be carbon neutral but none of those goals are going to be met and one of the issues with the IOC is that there's no accountability when you don't meet those goals that you lay out. There's no sanctions. There's no discussion. You just move on to the next host city and then that's it. As a historian, I've never particularly seen my work as being able to affect change, like in the public sector or anything. But I do hope that people in the Olympics at least use this whole opportunity and the criticism and take it into account in the planning moving forward. And it's also possible that the nature of this particular Olympics where it was streamed and it was on like different platforms. So I think that it's possible in terms of the environment that we do start to see it as like a streamed event and that mm -hmm. maybe it's not necessary for everybody to gather in one place. So I wonder if I can ask you step back a little bit and talk about this historical perspective that you have, because in your diplomat article, you argue that Japan has long been fixated on hosting the Olympics. And I'm wondering, why do you think that is the case? You mean going all the way back to the beginning? Yeah, that you've done the you've done the historical research on Japan and not just in terms of gender, but in terms of the environment in terms of how Japan has these political ambitions to host the Olympics. And it, it seems to me that the fixation is somewhat related to that. I'm basing this on my reading of your work, but I wonder if you could elaborate on that. Yeah, I think it's really helpful to look at like broader historical context alongside the Olympics, because after the Meiji Restoration, Japan rapidly modernized and westernized, which was a contrast to some of the neighboring countries, like China, who sought to hold on to their traditional ways, I think, in a way that Japan, I don't want to say didn't, but Japan pretty wholly embraced Western military tactics, and this idea of imperialism was pretty powerful. So after America used their gunboats on Japan, Japan used their gunboats on Korea and mm -hmm. other parts of Asia. And in some ways, Japan began to see themselves. This is not my analogy, but I've seen it elsewhere. It's like the England of Asia. They're this island nation off the main continent that perhaps sees itself as, as superior or somehow destined to take control <laughs> of a larger area. And in some ways, it's very rational that other that European nations were starting to gobble up parts of Asia and they were knocking on Japan's doorstep and so it was a period in time where 
it was colonized or recolonized, and mm-hmm. most of Asia was colonized by Western powers, and Japan took a very different route and aggressively began colonizing Asia. I do think that they were very influenced by Europe and the West in terms of education and physical education, and I think that kind of neatly folded into this desire to be part of this fundamentally Western event, which was the Olympics, which started off as a swim meet between Oxford and Cambridge and Harvard and Yale. It was a male-only elite Western white man's event. Japan was the first non-Western country to get involved in the Olympic movement. So you had Kano Jigoro, who invented the sport of judo, and he was the first Japanese member on the IOC. And he was pushing hard to have Japan be part of this event. And he thought that it would enhance Japan's prestige and visibility on the global stage. And at the same time, Pierre de Coubertin, who started the Olympics, wanted the event to be international. So he wanted beyond Europe and North America to be represented. So that worked well. They both wanted the same thing, Mm -hmm. to be part of an international movement and to have a movement be more international. And yeah, so then, and then it just went along with Japan's period of imperial expansion. So Japan, it it literally, the country was getting bigger. Its Olympic delegation was getting stronger. Even to this day, when you see, depending on your feelings of patriotism or nationalism, when you see your country's flag go up at these ceremonies, people tend to have this rush of pride. And so that, it worked very well with their nationalist warmongering. That's um, right. Because people felt a lot of pride in their country and and this was really the age of the nation state this was before the united nations and and as you mentioned kanaji goro is is really pushing for japan to be more of an actor on the world stage and i liked in your diplomat article how you go through this history and you talk about the aggression that the japanese had in east asia as you mentioned they're trying to bring about their own colonial empire imperial empire in east asia and i thought this quote that you used in the article was really interesting. You quote the Minister of Public Welfare at the time, Kodo Koichi, who's, who's you know, announcing that Japan will not host the 1940 Olympics, even though they had won the bid because of their aggression in East Asia. And the IOC in Japan determined that the Olympics will not be hosted in Japan. And so he, Kodo Koichi says, quote, when peace reigns again in the Far East, we can invite the world to see the true Japanese spirit. So I wonder what you think he meant by that. And then do you think that Japan is showing that true Japanese spirit now in the 2020 game? That's a great question. I can't put thoughts into his head, but I assume showing the true Japan just meant maybe not at a time of military aggression, but something more peaceful. It's hard to say in the 1930s and 40s when they were planning the 1940 Olympics, how much of a showcase this really was. Like the 1940s would have been pre-television. So I think it would have been broadcast over the radio. And so you can hear stuff, but you don't actually see it other than some maybe photographs. But they also were going to have a, a World's Fair. And those are these opportunities for people to learn about other parts of the world in a pre-internet era. There just mm-hmm. wasn't as much knowledge to be had. This notion of, of spirit seems to me, I mean, it's been a big part of my research right. on Japan, and I've always found it to be a very ambiguous term, and I think maybe that's one reason it's so popular, is it can be used in any context by anybody to talk about anything. And I'm curious, in the course of doing your research, you find quotes like this about you know, Japanese leaders using the term spirit and talking about this true Japanese spirit. I've always been skeptical that is something that we can really put our finger on, but is there something 
that you feel like from a distance, obviously you can't be in Japan for this Olympics, but is there something about what's being shown to the world by Japan right now doing this Olympics in the context of coronavirus, in the context of all these protests and all these different controversies surrounding the games? Is there something about the presentation of Japan to the world that, that shows off that spirit, whatever it might be? Yeah, I think if, if it hadn't been COVID, that there certainly would have been more focus on the sustainability. And I think Japan does use the fact that it's native religion of Shinto, which is rooted in nature, that somehow that makes them like extra qualified to take the global lead in sustainability initiative. I don't buy it. I don't think they are inherently more eco-friendly than anybody else, but I think that they can use that narrative in a particular way. But of course now I think everything, the only thing they're trying to show is that they can hold a safe event <laughs> and that mm. they care about people's safety and well-being, and that perhaps some of that has to do with technology. And I've seen a little bit of stuff about robots, mm -hmm. uh, not so much COVID robots, although I think they do have like temperature taking machines out there that are probably pretty high tech. I think just like in the sixties, they want to show off that they are at the forefront of technology, however that is, whether it's sustainable development technology, COVID sanitation technology, shuttling athletes around in driverless solar powered Toyota vehicles around the athlete's village. And, and another thing I think is that's interesting with this diffuse kind of media landscape is that you now have athletes posting stuff on their social media. I saw a whole thing about those driverless vehicles where a lot of athletes are posting TikToks and Instagrams about these cool things that they see in Japan. And that's how young people learn about it and say, oh, wow, there's this really neat thing that Japan is doing. Yes, absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned that because it does um, lead me to my next question. It seems one of the really key points of your historical research is about how the 64 games, which Tokyo did host, unlike the 1940 games, not only brought in this economic um, recovery for Japan after World War II and, and marked Japan as a huge player on the, the global economic and political stage, but it also, as you quote, laid the groundwork for subsequent Olympics across East Asia. Mm -hmm. And so it's my understanding that the main ambition of Japan politically in the 30s, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, because I'm not a historian, but was to replicate these colonialist ambitions. You mentioned it, it briefly before. And you know, you read about this notion of the East Asian co-prosperity sphere, which is this ideology that, that drove Japan to colonize other places. They thought they could bring their version of civilization to other parts of Asia, which had been colonized by Europeans. And obviously the historical record shows that these colonial ambitions were misguided. But I, I wonder if it's possible that the 64 Olympics ultimately accomplished a somewhat distorted version of that goal in the sense that Japan was able to give other Asian nations a blueprint for how it could show itself off to the world through the hosting of the Olympics. I think that's an astute analysis. I, I agree. I think, again, I do think that the shifting media helps because more and more people were able to actually see it in a way that prior to, I guess, the I mean, there was like a sort of pause in the Olympics during the war and people's focus was elsewhere. But yeah, in the post-war era, you had people with televisions in their houses or nearby. And so they actually did see with their own eyes, like the reckoning that happened in the U.S. with the Vietnam War, where people suddenly saw things in color that they had only really heard about or thought about in a more abstract fashion in the past. And possibly that did motivate 
people. And I think we've seen now there's been enough Olympics in different parts of the world, but it really is that that first one that's hosted in a country for Japan in 1964. And I guess my point is the impact of the Seoul Olympics in 1988 was extremely different from the 2018 Winter Olympics, which Winter Olympics always get less attention. But same with Beijing in 2008. I think all the subsequent Olympics, and Japan is the best example since it's now hosted four, Mm -hmm. right? Like Nagano, Sapporo and Nagano, just not as big of a deal. And Tokyo 2020, people have far less interest and excitement. I think it's obviously compounded by COVID. But even pre-COVID, the excitement level was really nowhere near what you hear about in the early 60s. Yes. And so this idea now that people are showing these TikTok videos, and and as you say, this media landscape is diffuse, and there's a lot of ways that people are consuming. I think Professor Billings said it to me, there's broadcasting, but there's not necessarily broad receiving. I like the way Mm. he put that. And so within that context, and I know you have young children, I have young children, we both view climate change as an existential crisis. And so you've already mentioned how there is talk about making these mega events like the Olympics more sustainable, but is it legitimate or is it just lip service or as the Japanese say, tatamai? Can these TikTok videos of the cool technologies that Japan has for in clean tech and other areas, can this be an area where other nations like Beijing hosting the next Olympics or Los Angeles or Paris, can this be the watershed Olympics for sustainability or is it too much lip service? Yeah, I think it's mostly lip service and I think it's just going to be so overshadowed in the historical record. And I also think it's very hard to get information about things that aren't going to happen, right? If they met all their goals and they were carbon neutral, we might hear about it, but whatever goals are not met and whatever environmental damage they do and whatever misguided construction projects took place, I I think it's going to fade into obscurity in the same way that so many Olympic venues that are built and and there's controversy and they spend a lot of money on them. You can find these websites of just white elephant stadiums, and especially for those strange sports, speed canoe courses and the the platform diving where in countries where they don't really do that and all Mm -hmm. the winter sports that are just not actually that popular or even feasible luge and all these things are like not widely practiced sports. So I think people have been having academic discussions about changing either to a smaller number of rotating cities or streaming it from different parts of the world, or those are the two most common possibilities. But it hasn't happened yet because people have been talking about it for a long time. And I think Mm -hmm. there is still this powerful kind of Olympic dream for athletes and you go somewhere special. And so it's hard to to even conceive of an event that's just drastically different. Mm -hmm. But... On the other hand, I feel for athletes who are put in an awkward position this year where they, I think a lot of them really are apolitical and they aren't trying to make any stand about politics or about uh, public health or whatever. They just want to do the thing that they've been training for maybe their whole lives. Maybe some of them would just want it to be a less like polarizing and damaging event, but I haven't seen discussion about this much aside from like economists and political scientists and scholars who talk about the Olympics. And I think the Olympics is a pretty powerful brand. And I think Mm. they have always done things in this one particular way. There's no way to know if it's a watershed. I think no matter what, the historical record is going to have an asterisk next to this 
2020 Olympics in 2021, the pandemic game. Mm-hmm. Hopefully it's not a disaster in the end that leads to some horrible public health crisis in Japan. That's unknowable at this time. Of course, yes. Yeah, maybe I'm just grasping for straws here, but it certainly does strike me as remarkable, at least, that, as you mentioned in your diplomat article, these were initially dubbed as the recovery games, right? This was a games that was supposed to be marking Japan as recovered from the triple disaster of March 11th, 2011, and intended to show the world that the nuclear meltdown in Fukushima had been cleaned up. Mm-hmm. But as you know, the situation is definitely not under control, and there's this irradiated water that's now being dumped into the Pacific Ocean. And I gather from your article that these games will likely negatively impact Japan, not just financially, but also in terms of international reputation. And yet I really am stuck on what you said to our colloquium back in June about these trash incinerators. (laughs) I don't know why I'm, again, maybe I'm just grasping for straws, but I find it so fascinating that Japan is capable of inventing a technology like this to take trash and literally make more land. Mm -hmm. The country of volcanoes, they're making more land with trash instead of lava. But I gather also from your research that it it seems to you, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to you that this is a very small part of a much bigger story, which is really about environmental degradation and a lot of promises of sustainability that are not really being kept. Yeah, I think I went into this project very open-minded and even-handed. And I also would like to see positive come out of it. And maybe this technology of burning trash for possibly productive use will ultimately be in wider use throughout the world and Japan will help lead the charge. But increasingly, and I think the way that public opinion has turned so sharply against the Olympics in Japan, it's pretty hard to remain neutral Mm -hmm. and to the good. Even watching the human interest stories, which we all enjoy about the Olympics, everything feels a little melancholy and Mm -hmm. dissonant and weird. And there's these two parallel things where you have this bubble of people pretending there's nothing else going on, but then occasionally somebody gets COVID and can't compete. And so they're trying to tune out the, the pandemic, but then outside the bubble, literally outside the Olympic bubble, you have a lot of people grumbling around Tokyo that different rules apply to the Olympics. And, and I, I think they're understandably frustrated. I think any host city, particularly when the, the local government really has little power and it's the IOC who's dictating what can and can't go forward, all these politicians can do is say, we'll do our best. And I think the international community recognizes that, that the IOC is maybe overstepping in this case and that mm-hmm. the, the local citizens really are pretty unhappy. And that's another possible silver lining is that there is more public input and or consideration. That's just not a good look for their brand when you have people, even if they try to turn the cameras away from the people protesting, even the Olympic sponsor media in Japan, the Asahi Shimbun and all these other media outlets, they had no choice but to report on the fact that people were unhappy, people were protesting. And people really don't want this. And that's another possible silver lining is that the reputation not only to Japan, but to the Olympic movement might lead to doing things differently in the future and Mm -hmm. in a more inclusive way. Yes, that sure would be nice, wouldn't it? It it does 
occur to me that in hearing you talk that it could be labeled the tone deaf Olympics. You have all these controversies and gaffes and awful things that have been said by leaders. There have been so many instances where it does feel like the leadership, the IOC, the JOC, the Tokyo Olympic Organizing Committee has really dropped the ball and, and not listened to public opinion. And four of five people in July, just a month ago, we're saying we didn't even want the Olympics, and yet the games have gone on. And so maybe this will be the last tone-deaf Olympics. I was discussing this with somebody yesterday that, like, global interest is low. Yes. And I don't remember the exact source or the exact numbers, but a surprising number of Americans really don't care. It's not even that they feel one way strongly or another that they should or should not have gone on. They just don't care. They're just mm -hmm. not watching it. They... Mm -hmm aren't interested. Yes, and that, that, that is my experience too in talking to people around here. And I also think that's generally the case with sports since the coronavirus pandemic. The, we had that three month period here in the US where there were really no sports mm -hmm. at all. And mm -hmm. I think people have moved on in some ways to other fields. Maybe. I like to think it'll come back. And actually yesterday, I forget the name of the cup, but we were watching the US play Mexico in, in soccer. And that was at a completely jam packed stadium in Las Vegas. And that was really weird for me to, to watch people cheering loudly with packed stadiums while simultaneously the Olympics is happening empty in Tokyo. And it just sends the viewers a very confusing message, I have to say. Do people care? Do they not? Is it safe? Is it not? Is Yeah. Is it... <laughs> I wouldn't I mean... be in that stadium, but, but maybe others would. Yeah. Well, yeah. clearly, clearly others would, right? Clearly many tens of thousands of people <laughs> chose to be there. So, so what do you think it is then? I'll ask the same question I ask all my guests. What do you think this, this power of sports is? And is it changing maybe now as a historian? You must have an insight into that. It's a good question. And it's not something I have an immediate answer to. But I do think people love to feel emotion. People love to feel an affinity to country or a city or a team or a institution. And I think that's really human nature. People like to feel affiliation to religions or churches or schools. And so I think it, it definitely is part of that human desire to be part of something. Mm -hmm. um, it is a nonviolent way for countries to compete against each other and to flex their muscles on a global stage and to show who's better. I do think the human interest stories are really powerful in the Olympics in particular, where people just love stories of we're all human. And so when you hear stories about people escaping persecution or being successful through difficult conditions, or even just training hard. There's something admirable and like, I don't know. I, it, I'm not answering your question. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. I'm curious though, do you think the power of the Olympic movement and particularly the IOC and this juggernaut that we started the conversation talking about, this economic juggernaut, the corporate interests, do you think the power of those forces is now somewhat overwhelming? The power of these human interest stories, the power of this desire for people to feel like they're part of something bigger. I think it's certainly tainted the mm -hmm. idea that there's something pure about sports. And in a similar way, I was just listening to a podcast about amateurism and the new 
Supreme Court ruling about NCAA athletes being able to accept money. And I think that like people long held on to this idea of amateurism and you get an education in exchange for being a student athlete. But the more and more the institutions were profiting off these athletes, it, be- it became pretty clear that there was something out of whack. That's right. And I think maybe that's similar with the Olympics, but we've already tossed the amateurism like rules out the window. And so these people are primarily professional, depending on the sport. But I think that corporate interests have definitely changed the some of the idealism that around Olympic athletes. There's also sometimes a backlash in these situations, but 1984 in Los Angeles, it was so heavily corporate that people didn't like the taste of it. It was Mm -hmm. like, I think every mile of the torch relay was like sponsored by a different company. This is the McDonald's mile, and this is like Visa, and this is Coca-Cola. And people thought it was disgusting. And they're like, we need to scale back a little bit and like not have it be so visible and corporate. So I'm not sure how people feel these days. I think people understand that like athletes need sponsorship and money and things in the world cost money and you need corporations to, to help pay for some of these athletes to do things. But yeah, people also have a distaste for monopolies and big corporations. And so I'm not sure. <laughs> Well, Robin, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's been really eye-opening to talk to you about all these issues. And I think the added value that you bring to the table is being able to connect a lot of different dots, both the historical stuff, but also the connections between the corporate interests and the environmental movements and be able to disentangle the the tatamai from the hone, the lip service from the reality. Unfortunately, we don't get a lot of that in the broader mass media. And so I really appreciate you sharing those insights with my listeners. Thanks for having me and definitely still a work in progress. And the ending of this particular Tokyo Olympics remains to be told. And I think it's going to probably take several years of processing before we really understand what happened and what the implications of these postponed Olympics will be. But I appreciate you reaching out to me and for taking the time to listen. I was really excited, I must say, to, to interview you for this because I think it's not common for people to think about sports and the environment together, but they are related, as you show. And I think people need to know that these events have consequences. It's not just about who wins and loses the games. There's got to be some kind of tax put on companies for creating products with things you can't burn without polluting the air or because like you've mentioned before, sorting these different substances in the garbage into Mm. trash cans. I would think that's going to be a thing from Japan that other countries will have to start adopting at some point. Yeah, people's behavior can change. When you live in Japan, you just get used to it. You're like, I I have my like four different trash cans and it's fine. It's not a big deal. Thank you, Robin. I really appreciate it. And thanks for being on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Well, that will wrap up our show today. I hope you learned something about the environmental impact of the Olympic Games, the sustainability promises of the IOC, and the importance of historical research. What do you make of Professor Kitlinski's research findings? Should there be an oversight organization to monitor the IOC and limit their greenwashing? How can we hold the IOC accountable to ensure that they keep the promises of sustainability that they make? Thank you very much for listening. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show. And if you have time, leave a favorable review. 
I never forget that my listeners are what make this show possible and worthwhile. I welcome your feedback on the show, so why not head over to my Patreon page and leave me a note. That's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and you can search for me there by typing my name into the search box. That's Aaron L. as in Larry Miller. I look forward to hearing your thoughts on the Olympics and on this show. Have a great day, everyone.